Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is a August 10th and crossover 11th episode. Um, episode, what are we now? Episode 60, I believe. Um, that might be a possible note of celebration um, for you and me. <laughs> because if you're a long-time listener, I appreciate you sticking around with me for so long. Yes, yeah, episode 60. So on the spirit of constant experimentation, um, as this podcast is, as it over time, sometimes um, I'd say diverges from what it was originally intended, but still keeps on the theme of um, what I consider investing in people. I wanted to actually do an episode um, based on a essay that I actually have been writing for the last couple days. And this essay has been let's say, in the works of my mind for the last uh, few weeks. And I decided it's probably a good time. I just want to kind of pick a day, sit down and just write for about four hours and then write for, again for another like three, four hours again to just really um, combine all the thoughts I had and all the various notes I took on my journals as well as my notebook and just passing um, Evernote dumps that I did with various ideas and I don't have a title yet for the essay Um, I'm actually just recording this as soon as I just kind of finished clarifying my thoughts and doing a very rough edit of it Um, if you are familiar with my writing style I generally don't like to edit might be considered lazy but it's just how I keep it enjoyable for me and so I don't have a particular title yet but I think it might be called am I fishing where the fish are um, which is the premise for what led to writing this essay and the big question behind it. And the term, am I fishing where the fish are, is, um, I would say, attributed to what Charlie Munger continuously um, touts as a key, what is it, approach to investing, like constantly like trying to make sure that are you fishing where the fish are? Because many times people try to fish in an overfished pond or where there really aren't any fish at all. So even if you are the best fisherman, you really won't catch any fish. And I thought it, would, it might be a good way to start the uh, essay with a quote. Um, it's quite a long passage. So if you don't mind my voice, um, please listen on. So it's something I think Charlie Munger said in one of his Berkshire meetings It's so hard in a competitive world to get big advantages just buying securities, particularly when you're doing it by the billion. And then you add the burden of very high fees and think that by working hard and reading a lot of sell-side research and so forth that you're going to do well. It's delusional. It's not good to face the world in a delusional way. And I don't think when Berkshire came up, we had an easier world than you people are facing this point forward. And I don't think you're going to get the kind of results we got by just doing what we did. That's not to say that... That's not to say what we did and the attitudes that we had are obsolete or won't be useful. It's just that their prospects are worse. There's a rule of fishing. That's a very good rule. The first rule of fishing is fish where the fish are. And the second rule of fishing is don't forget rule number one. And in investing, it's the same thing. 
Some places have lots of fish and you don't have to be that good a fisherman to do pretty well. Other places are so heavily fished that no matter how good a fisherman you are, you aren't going to do very well. And in the world we're living in now, an awful lot of places are in the second category. I don't think that should discourage anyone. I mean, life's a long game, and there are easy stretches and hard stretches and good opportunities and bad opportunities. The right way to go at life is to take it as it comes and do the best you can. And if you live to an old age, you'll get your share of good opportunities. It may be two to a lifetime, that may be your full share. But if you seize one of the two, you'll be alright. So that was a pretty long one, but I think it um, gives a great overview of where the kind of idea of fishing where the fish are comes from. Um, and it's, this isn't the only quote. Like Charlie Munger's constantly said um, th- this mantra many times in both the t- Daily Journal shareholders meeting as well as the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. And so for today's episode, uh, I'm not going to read my entire essay word for word. Um, as I look at it now, let me look at the note details. Um, it's about a 3,800-word essay. So, And... Knowing me, um, I tend to be relatively verbose in my writing, so a lot of quibs, a lot of sidetracks. So if you like my style of writing, definitely please do check it out at omdventures.com. It's where the writing section is, and the most recent essay will be there. Um, You might not recognize the title because I might change it last minute, but um, the most recent one will be there, and it'll still relatively be at the same theme. But I figured I'd use this episode to kind of um, use it a, as a forum to just talk through, at at least at a high level, what I was thinking through with this essay. Um, because it 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 is it is a it is a question that really made me um think about challenging my own beliefs of investing. So chronologically speaking, um, that's kind of how the essay goes. I if I think about like my own investing journey, it started out with what. You know, it, anyone who reads a lot of Buffett. So I'm, I am assuming right now that you, my listener, are kind of relatively well educated in the world of quote unquote value investing. So you know who Warren Buffett is. You know um, what fundamental investing is, like the bottom up stock pick, stock picking methodology. Uh, it's just at the very high level. You know, just um, the the idea of you want to buy compounding businesses very for a very long term you know these are the very simple i think principles of investing that are commonly touted um and another caveat before i dig in again is um i might sound extremely stupid as i talk through these thoughts because i think the reason i wanted to write this essay is because i wanted to think about challenging all the learnings i had as an investor and actually thinking about it differently to the way I wanted to possibly see the world or how I felt the world should be seen. Um, and this might be very against what um, traditional or more, I think, um, modern majority of investors think. And so if you disagree, just keep your opinions to yourself. I don't really want any hate mail <laughs> or people telling me I'm stupid. I'm uh, not really up for that. So, But just keep in mind. And so don't take me so seriously if I have this kind of point of view or I'm just asking these questions and some of them might be very ridiculous questions um, I'm completely aware of that and that's just kind of the limitations of my own knowledge as I talk about this but so to start off with um, when I started investing it it was a very simple strategy of okay buy you know high return on invested capital businesses um, that's very common that's exactly what you know Buffett, Fisher, Munger uh, all kind of said are 
the key things to do. You know, buy quality companies, hold it for a long time, let it compound in growth. And what I didn't realize at the time was that all these companies that I was finding, specifically more in the Canadian um, equity landscape because of my background in Toronto and my home uh, was a home area bias where I think psychologically um, people have a tendency to, I think, overweight their portfolios to like nearly 70 to 90% of the investments originating from their home stock exchange. For Americans, that's not so bad because the U.S. exchange is 50% of the global market, I think, about. But for Canadians, our exchange is, I don't know, what, 10% of the global market? I'm just throwing a number out there out of my ass, but that seems about right. Um, so for us to overweight that, it means that we're really bullish on the Canadian economy or, you know, we're not fully representing the global economy. Possibly, possibly. Obviously, a lot of nuances there. Sorry, drinking my coffee. And so I realized later on, in hindsight, that all these companies were relatively called, quote-unquote, roll-ups. And they actually saw the benefit of a low interest rate environment where these roll-up companies, they're called roll-ups because basically their strategy is to just continuously acquire uh, competitors, like small mom-and-pop competitors or just even smaller-sized businesses um, and just get bigger. It's just more of an aggregation, acquisition strategy. And in hindsight, I should have been more aware of how much debt that they were using and possibly rethinking how I calculate return on invested capital as well as the organic growth these companies are achieving. I think eventually I was kind of getting um, aware of that. Um, thankfully, investors around me were uh, ask, telling me to look at some areas that I um, weren't fully paying attention to because I think when you start out investing, you tend to be relatively very quantitative um, because it's just easier to understand that way. At least for me, it was. And so that was kind of how I started. It was kind of, it was still a relatively concentrated portfolio um, because I was considered contrarian. And I was like being contrarian just for the sake of being contrarian. So, and it just made sense for me um, to have like a hundred stock portfolio. Didn't make sense having like a five stock portfolio made more sense to me. And so that was kind of how I invested in the beginning. And then um, that slowly morphed. And so if I had more of a mid larger cap companies uh, that were roll ups, so fast growing, using a lot of dead, a lot of acquisitions, I I learned that okay, well. Um, they're kind of playing musical chairs in a sense, just hoping for a continuous low interest rate environment and just continuously getting more debt to buy more and buy more and buy more. And I realized a number of the companies I held actually weren't actually having much in organic growth. So I realized much of it could be, you know, it is it is inorganic and kind of manufactured growth in senses. Um, and they were kind of making it seem like it was organic growth when it wasn't. So I'm talking about like, you know, buying companies that roll up convenience chain, convenience store chains, restaurants, fast foods, etc. And so after a while, um, I, I want to say about three, three years after that part of the journey, I moved into more of a size volume strategy. So the idea was to invest in small caps with low liquidity. And there's a lot of research that focuses on it. There's a lot of communities on it. I think the most predominant would be um, like the Microcap Club that I've always been a big uh, follower of and a lot of small cap investors out there like Eric Cinnamon, who's the um, um, absolute return small cap investor. There's Ian Castle, who's um, a pretty well-known microcap investor. Like I was following him way before, um, well, not way before, but I think before he is currently reached his current moment of um, 
level of fame. Um, but, you know, and there's like Jeff Gannon, who's also looking at undiscovered stocks. And so there's a lot of small cap or micro cap focused investors that have been constantly following. And there's a good number of also really great ones in um, Canada as well, especially because I think we have a very good ecosystem um, that allows small cap companies to go public. I didn't know that. I thought every stock exchange was like this, but it turns out the TSX and the TSXV are relatively unique. And that actually has attracted a lot of U.S. investors to look at the Canadian stock market because of that, because the U.S. exchange environment apparently is not very favorable to small companies wanting to list um, publicly. So that was something I didn't know. But at the time, that was the idea. It just seemed to make logical sense. There's also a very famous um, research paper that's constantly updated by Roger Ibbotson from Yale and Zebra Capital, where the whole idea is that um, illiquid companies tend to provide greater returns than liquid companies. And uh, you can kind of find the papers online and go deeper into it. Um, to be honest, I didn't read the entire research paper. I just kind of got the idea and the gist of it, kind of the TLDR. And then I was like, okay, well, yeah, it's kind of, it was more of a confirmation bias. Like, this is what I'm doing. It makes more sense to me. And okay, this guy says it works. And for me, the, the strategy developed, like it, I was influenced by the external uh, market where you just can, you know, small cap investors like to talk their book. And the reason they invest in small companies is because, yeah, well, it's just easier to, I think, comprehend by for our imagination, uh, at least for me, um, given, okay, a $10 million company will has a probably a better likelihood of becoming a $100 million company than, you know, a $100 billion company becoming a trillion dollar company. It's just, there's way more $100 million companies and way more billion dollar companies out there for a $100 million company to become a billion dollar company. Then there are trillion dollar companies. I mean, what there are like some three of those on a good day. Um, now, obviously, there could be more in the future. I'm not saying we can only have three. But just being aware of um, the bias I have where, yeah, it's just easier for me to grasp that a small company can get a little bigger. And you know, even if it 10x or 100x, it's still an acceptable size. Um, that's very reasonable in the market. So there was that aspect. And also there was my experience working at a fund where I real. Um, the fund I was at managed a lot of money. I was in a overall the fund managed it's about sixty billion dollars ish, uh, just more than that. But the two funds I worked at primarily one managed fifteen billion dollars, one managed three billion dollars um, because I straddled between international equities and um, global small cap equities. And what I learned was that um, because funds have large assets under management, um, they also don't want to necessarily get into companies that they will have a tiny position in like you know 20 basis points for example like that's 0.2 percent weighting i mean what's the point of doing all the research and investing something like that so that also makes a lot of companies um in terms of market size not acceptable to really like look at or invest research time into so then you have a lot of neglected companies um, practically anything under i want to say like 300 million dollars in market cap or 500 million dollars in market cap is going to be ignored by many um, mid to large size funds like anything if a fund is more than a billion dollars in assets under management they're definitely not going to be looking at like a hundred million dollar company um, because they can't really build a big enough position and they might also get into liquidity constraints so there's all these kinds of issues related uh, they might really get in there if it's a really you know it's a, if it's a fund that they're or a business they really like, and they might be willing to give a small weight to it, um, despite 
the size constraint and they might just wait for the company to grow and continuously add like that's also a possibility but overall i felt there was a structural advantage i had um and this is after i left um my investment fund to invest in small cap companies that were highly liquid and it's kind of you get to play multiple strings like you have more optionality on how the company grows so there's obviously you can generate wealth with the business actually growing over time um, you know growing the revenue growing the bottom line etc but also the discoverability once uh, a liquid small cap company gets discovered by a large cap then the stock price tends to kind of pop up um, drastically so i've had a few situations where that's happened before when an institutional investor got into some companies i'd hold and also if that kind of rapidly increases they might get accepted into like an index for i don't know small cap companies or um, I don't know, there's so many ETFs out there. And so once they get into that, they have all this volume flow coming in. And so that al- that can also um, pump up the stock price. So there's all these, I I don't know, not necessarily financial shenanigans, given how there's a book that's written about that and that's more about accounting tricks, but there is a bit of that. There's um, arbitrage kind of situation with the inefficiency, with the structural nature of financial markets. So the idea was to play that. And, but over time, it, it, the part of me was losing interest um, in looking at small caps. Like, to be honest, so, like, I, I like small businesses and um, I've always been a fan of even, like, non-venture funded companies. I find them much more fascinating. I also, like, love bootstrapped companies. And so I always want to gravitate towards these small businesses. But I've, over time, realized I either like really early stage um, companies where they have very small amounts of people, like, like very small, like 20 people, companies that are just kind of working away at something very small. I find those very fascinating. And, but necessarily small cap companies don't fit under that bucket in many cases. Um, sometimes software companies will. Um, but there was also the aspect where these companies are just easier to understand, right? Like you read an annual report for a $100, 300000000 million company. I mean, it's only going to be like 30, 40 pages, um, maybe at most. And so those are really easy to read through. You can understand the business. They usually have just one line item where they're just making money. So it's a very simple com- company to understand, which is important. But over time, I realized I I was losing interest in it. I wasn't fully able to figure out why. It might have been um, because possibly of just limited information because really the advantage of small cap investing is you want to actually speak to management, um, do a lot of scuttlebutt, and just actually kind of do a lot of research and kind of journalism work, kind of getting dirty, uh, going into the, you know, doing the book, you know, what's that, boots on the ground, kind of driving around, seeing what the customers do, visiting the office, etc. Not that large caps don't do that, but at least for small caps, that was kind of, that's, I believe, is kind of more of the advantage, and that's also what draws a lot of people in. And... For me, um, that wasn't necessarily my style, and I don't want to sound like I'm a person who doesn't like to do scuttlebutt. It's just the way I like to do it is slightly different, um, and that might also be an excuse, so I'm aware of that. But yeah, it just made me think about, well, hmm, could this be true, though? Is it true that small cap and illiquid companies are actually going to lead to better outperformance? And it made me think about just the inefficiency aspect of everything. So the the first question was, well, one belief is that um, the large cap world is highly inefficient and it's crowded with a lot of quote-unquote smart money, uh, large funds, lots of action, a lot of volume, and it's hard to outperform. 
and that they won't do as well. And so that made me think, well, hmm, when I think about the people that actually I admire and a lot of very smart investors that I follow, and this is, once again, I could be very biased, uh, but a lot of small cap investors that I've been listening to and learning from as I was developing my investment strategy in that realm, they're very smart people. I mean, I'm I'm always learning a ton, um, listening to their interviews, their podcast interviews, reading about their blogs, and they do a lot of work. And these people are so passionate about what they do. And that made me wonder, actually, about the perception that large caps are efficient and small caps inefficient to be possibly outdated. Like, I, I wonder, could it actually be the other way around now? Um, because in one way, there's a lot of perceived career risk. Like, not many people will go out on their own and be an entrepreneur and set up a small fund. And usually when they do that on their own, they want to create some kind of value, obviously, if you're selling a product. And so they end up targeting a niche. And many times a niche could be determined by, you know, overlook stocks or just micro small caps, illiquid companies, just things that a large cap cannot go into because of structural restrictions, like I said. And people who tend to do that bear a lot of career risk, perceived career risk, sorry, um, because in my mind, they actually have better trade-offs than people who actually just work in a job uh, at a large investment fund. But from on the outside looking in, they have a lot of perceived career risk. And so it's not something a lot of people will do. The only people who will do it is because they actually like love it so much or believe in it so much. And so you're competing against those people when you're actually fishing in the small cap pond. And these are people who just love investing so much that they, they will do everything. They'll un, you know turn over every rock, look at every company out there. And the reality is, is that people who go into large funds... Um, and I'm kind of overgeneralizing, not saying everyone is, because I've also met very smart people who work in large funds. But in many cases, the average large fund doesn't really do well. And the idea, the saying that, you know, 80% of funds out underperform, um, well, most funds are very large. And large funds also have many little funds inside of it. And they'll kind of follow the same dictum. And it's kind of take, gone into by people who are, you know, quote unquote, extremely risk averse, who just want great brand names. You know, they want the big BlackRock, Fidelity, all the big brand names on their uh, resumes and it just makes them feel prestigious and they get to you know do all kind of benefits etc but ne- they're not necessarily better investors and in many cases they cannot take the amount of career risk um, that comes with investing in small funds uh, in like small cap uh, companies not to mention that they cannot really have the same level of kind of concentration required to actually outperform either so it at the highest level, I was thinking, hmm, I feel like there's actually a greater pool of small cap managers or greater pool of smarter investors in the small cap world in proportion to um, the really smart people who play in the large cap um, world. Now, this is specifically talking about com- people who distinctively look at size and volume as a possible investing edge. Um, because I know there's some really smart managers who are more generalists who just look at everything and I think those are people are highly, like those are the people I've been studying lately. Um, and they kind of more fall under the bucket of, once again, entrepreneurial managers who just run a small fund themselves and they're just really into investing. But once again, I find that specifically those who are very into these micro small caps just, just love investing so much. And the amount of research they do and the digging they do is just so incredible. And in many ways, it's very intimidating for me to watch and go, wow. Man, that's just not my style. I just I 
it just naturally just doesn't click with me. I feel like there needs to be a kind of natural um, urge and love to do that. If you don't, then you have to realize that's not the game you want to play. Um, that's exactly how I felt when I was working at my previous fund. I was talk- I was comparing myself with other analysts um, who I was working with, and the way they loved doing the kind of scuttlebutt they did, I was so impressed, and I was like, wow, I, I don't think I can get to his level. Just the natural love of... Um, digging into something so deep, I think was very intimidating for me. And it made me really question um, how I wanted to invest. And honestly, at the high level, like even whether I should be an investor, like that's how deep I had to question. Um, I think now I I know that I still want to invest and I like being an investor because of the whole intellectual curiosity aspect, but it's more figuring out the things that I'm more curious to dig deeper into. Anyhow, that got me thinking about, hmm, yeah, so there might be something different about this truth of whether um, large caps are actually inefficient or uh, actually truly efficient because the small cap world might actually be more efficient given how there's many more, I think, smarter people who do more work for each company in that field. And that leads to the idea of like what kind of game are you playing and the competition in that area because, like I said, um, a lot of American investors, small cap investors are going to the U- the Canadian exchanges because we have a lot of, lot more small cap companies here. And the nature, though, is that there's also an element of the small cap world which is very uh, shady and I think, personally for me, kind of disgusting where there's I've, I've kind of spoken with friends in the industry about how there are a number of, you know, like kind of boutique investment banks who will whose kind of main job is to pump up stock prices of anything trendy, like we, you know, be at the marijuana sector in, in Canada and we know how that thing had a, you know, boom bust cycle. And a lot of it, uh, lo and behold, is actually not really, I don't know if manipulated is a strong word, it's too strong of a word, but, you know, the investment banks and people there, ha- there are in- people with incentives to just pump up stock prices very quickly and attract a lot of the true kind of quote unquote dumb money, like retail investors won't do any work and they just kind of want to quit you know, quick wins and get out. And many people don't know about that. Um, but that also sh- shows that there's a lot of garbage in the micro small cap world. And caveat, I'm just going to use micro small cap as just like small cap in general, just because anything under, I don't know, like $500 million, um, I'll just kind of group in the same bucket, although they might technically be different. But just being lazy here. And so it, it given how there really aren't that many qualities, like there's a reason why usually these companies are small, right? Um, especially after a long period of time, if they've been small in for about you know 10 years, it sometimes might be a reason why they're small. It might be that they just really target a tiny niche and that market will never grow and that company never really wants to grow. Like some companies don't want to grow and usually they end up kind of slowly shrinking. And I've also noticed that over time, you've studied these small cap managers and everyone kind of talks about a handful of companies. Um, and obviously the ones that work even harder are going to uncover the other ones faster. So in many ways, to kind of get the arbitrage of getting ahead of the large caps who would po- or large funds that might come in, it's just about finding it first. And in many cases, the small cap managers who just work really hard, they'll find it, and then in some ways, they've kind of set an efficient price, and then you're just kind of waiting for a large, comp- large fund to enter and create another inefficiency bump in um, prices with the huge surge that they come with their big funds. Um, but yeah, that got me thinking about, well, hmm, maybe it is a very overfish pond. Um, there aren't that many fish there, um, or there are a lot of fish. There are a lot of small cap companies, but 
how many of them are truly quality, how many of them would really fit under my investment criteria. And the question is like, you know, like it's like when you're in a supermarket and you have to ask yourself, why is this thing on sale? It's kind of like, well, yeah, why is it, why is this company cheap? Why is it so small? Um, in many ways, it might never actually compound in value. And so that's something to keep in mind. And it made me think about how, like we think about the most smallest investment space, like the VC and, and angel investing world, where it's like, yeah, like in many cases there you invest in a company that's valued at like $10 million. And the earlier stage in, uh, investor is, they tend to have a much wider um, portfolio, uh, I guess, larger portfolio of companies um, because, you know, many, most startups will fail. Um, many, most 10 mi- companies valued at $10 million will fail. And that number might na- might narrow um, as you move up the valuation chain, but um, there's also no guaranteeing that because a company is public that it's going to compound and grow and do well, right? I think there's also a good enough, um, I, I don't know the numbers, I haven't actually looked at research, but it's more of a guess is that the failure rate is still probably relatively high for a company that is you know, $100 million market cap or even like $300 million market cap compared to a company that would be like to $10 billion in market cap, for example. They just might not have a strong enough market position and or they might not be able to um, grow for a very long time and they might actually just decay after growing to maybe like $500 million in market cap, for example. And where was I going with this? Sorry, I was just ranting. Um, yes, I was talking about assessing like the competition and the game to play. Yeah, and so, but given given that kind of high failure rate, it made me think about, well, hmm, is this really the place I want to play? Um, is this the game I want to play? And it made me think about how there's also the idea of um, like concentration and portfolio construction and Many of these small cap fund managers, um, they can actually take very concentrated positions in companies. And they might actually really do that because they actually truly know something unique about the company. They might actually have a bit of an information edge, um, which is really hard to get in the public markets. But if you do enough scuttlebutt, you might actually have a bit of that and more so an analytical edge as well. And then I thought about large cap companies comparatively and large cap funds. It, the the key the big example is like in 2020 um Berkshire Hathaway's equity portfolio was at one point 43% apple now apple is one of the largest companies out there and it's a great business everyone knows that but nobody invested as much as buffett did back then and buffett um you know did extremely well from his apple investments but he's also he also held on to it the whole time. And obviously some parts of his portfolio shrank and that's why Apple also got bigger, but also Apple also grew and compounded in value. But the big question is also, how many fund managers will be allowed to hold a large cap company at a high concentration, right? Because in one way, you look at a uh, uh, angel investor who might invest in like 100 companies because so many would fail, but you just need one to really hit it big. And then you have on one end, well, Larger companies have a lower likelihood of failing. So in one way, it doesn't make sense to hold 100 large companies, really, um, because all those companies individually have so many business units. So in, in essence, you buy an Apple and then you kind of have revenue coming from all over the world uh, with various different product lines and businesses. And so a, a fund actually having 40% in one of these large mega companies could actually make sense. And Buffett can do that. But how many other large cap managers can do that? 
relatively few. I think if you would be hard hard pressed to find any fund manager um, without an extremely uh, long track record and solid reputation to even be allowed to have thirty percent of their fund in um, a large cap company, like especially like any like fund a large fund that has you know tens of billions in AUM. Most will actually have to constantly trim their positions. Like even ten percent might not be acceptable. Ten percent might be something that a fund would actually advertise outwardly as like oh look how concentrated we are we have 10 percent in you know google for example it's like oh okay well i mean i think the s&p 500 might have a bigger weight in google <laughs> than uh, most funds and so most funds might actually only be allowed to like maybe have like maybe four percent of their fund and like their best ideas so even if a company is great you might have a f- situation where not everyone can actually put in the full weight that they want um even if it is a crowded market. And so I guess one side of the argument is like, oh, well, yeah, but if you have hundreds of these multi-billion dollar funds all have 4% stakes in Google, then yeah, like that is kind of crowded. But at the same time, not a, but an individual fund can actually have a concentrated bet in it. And so in one way, when you think about competing against them, it's like, mm, I think there's actually still like inefficiency there because they can't really fully capture um, the full amount of like the value of the company that they want to so that that was that kind of brought me down into the idea of well then hmm like what is true like some people would say oh you know some like large caps are less riskier than small caps etc and because of maybe business failure rate etc um and i'll get into the idea of diversification later but I, i mean we've seen from covid and what my um fund uh a manager i used to work for um, used to tell me is that like on the notion of diversification, he would tell me, Dan, when when a crisis comes, everything correlates to one, and I think that's kind of what happened with COVID. It didn't matter what market cap size you were, like the rebound might have been different, but when it fell, everything fell. So that I don't think really helps with any kind of quote unquote um, I don't know risk management. Um, even to think that price declines the risk is silly, right? It's just volatility. So then the the question became, okay, then, um, shit, what what are the truths of investing? Because the the belief I used to have about small caps and illiquid companies always going to be have um just going to have outperformance and kind of being the place the um, fish the pond to fish in might no longer be true anymore. It might just be a belief that people hold um, based on you know, various historic data that they're inferring to. But in in many ways, you're then hoping for this historic data to not only rhyme, but maybe just repeat in general, because you don't really know what rhyming of historical data really means, right? The world from 1960s is very different from the 2020s. The equity markets are different. And not to mention, if I think about the research that was used to project, you know, the return of illiquid companies or small cap companies, we don't really know if it was the fact that they were small and illiquid was actually the reason for outperformance. We don't really know if that is true. Like we have large data sets look tracking, um, I think, these key metrics, but I don't think that's necessarily true that these are these are the key reasons, core reasons why um, they outperform. There could be so many other factors. It could also be that, well, these were just completely overlooked. Um, because there no, you know, for small investors to ever really even invest in small caps was um, foolhardy. No one ever did that, and 
you know, they, the internet wasn't there. there. There weren't like all these clubs and conferences and blogs all covering all these small caps with very smart people just going there as arbitrage because they felt the large cap space was kind of all milked out. So I think there needs to be that context and environment that things have changed rapidly and that we are also in a new environment than before. So I think there really is a lot of danger in relying on past data to kind of infer a certain truth of investing. And so that's just what I've been thinking about, that that could actually not work out. Just because 50 years of data said it did doesn't mean that'll be true anymore. Um, Now, I don't know. I don't know if this is the right application of base rates and people might say, well, based on past data, this they're more like statistically like to outperform and so I might be totally wrong. But I don't know. A part of me thinks garbage in, garbage out. What if all that's just, um, you know, wrong? What if it all just so happened to go out like this and the data just happened to spit all this stuff out? Doesn't mean that it has to happen again. And it was just kind of thinking about well what can i infer from the present um because the whole point of investing is to kind of use the present as a lens into the future you're still kind of forecasting things out and the past is more like a reflection of um, possible evidence of execution really so that made me really question this quote-unquote truth of then what really is true um about investing and idea of market caps and liquidity etc and this got me thinking about the idea of diversification. Um, I think the famous quote by Greenblatt um, in his book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, which is also a very well-read book, loved by many, especially small-cap investors. Um, I love it too. Like I love listening to Joel Greenblatt's interviews. Um, and Joel Greenblatt's famous for running a 6 to 8 um, stock portfolio. And he's talked about the idea, uh, the what's that, research and diversification and how I think he said, so his quote is, statistics say that owning two stocks eliminates 46% of the non-market risk of owning just one stock. This type of risk is supported to, supposed to be reduced by 72% with a four-stock portfolio, by 81% with eight stocks, 93% with 16 stocks, 96% with 32 stocks, and 99% with 500 stocks. And so once again, you have a diminishing return on the, um, I guess, elimination of non-market risk whatever that's supposed to be um because once again when shit happens everything just kind of collapses together anyways but yeah i think the idea is that yeah if you have you know eight different businesses who are actually very different in business model they're kind of doing completely different things then yeah you might actually be able to eliminate um correlation and just quote-unquote non-market risk by 81 percent but yeah there's kind of a diminishing return curve and i think many look at you know 15 stocks as a magic number i think munger has constantly talked about you only need two to four stocks in your portfolio um and so once again there's been also a possible truth and okay then you want to concentrate you want to have a concentrated portfolio because you cannot outperform without a concentrated portfolio and you know many ways venture capitalists do that too although they start out with a 100 stock portfolio most die and then the best ones continue growing and then they actually do follow-up rounds um, it's kind of the the adage of, you know, you want to water your flowers, constantly bet on the ones that are going to do well and let them ride. And like, you know, instead of like trimming, like what most public equity fund managers do. So that ends up resulting in a concentrated portfolio. But what it made me think about is, 
Well, maybe the truth isn't that you need to have a concentrated portfolio. It's more so you end up having a concentrated portfolio because if you actually do well, you, it's just because you're going to have the handful of stocks that just ended up doing extremely well. Because I think there's more. There's also literature on how a handful of companies will actually return um, most of like the outsized return of the stock market. And like we've seen with the Fang. Uh, stocks kind of leading the entire return for the Nasdaq and S and P five hundred. It's just a handful of companies that do that. The rest are kind of just like in for the ride. Um, the remaining four hundred ninety companies or something. So, given how generally you're gonna see this massive, um, you know, distrib- um, unequal distribution where you're just gonna have a handful of companies like kind of the eighty twenty like the one more like 90 10 like 10 percent of companies returning 90 percent of the returns and then the remaining 90 percent kind of accounting for like 10 percent of the returns of the market maybe the truth is to just the truth is that a few companies um, will make all the difference um, in your investing career and it's not necessarily that you have a concentrated portfolio but if you have a concentrated portfolio with those in it then yeah you'll do well but most of the times your portfolio will get concentrated as a result of holding one or two of these great companies if you can find them. So necessarily concentrating alone won't actually do you any good because if you have 10 trash companies, it doesn't really matter. And I think that's kind of what actually Charlie Munger talks about where he says he constantly just focuses on you know, swing when there's a big opportunity. And for him, it's about, yeah, finding the, the handful of companies that'll do extremely well and give you that um, those amazing returns. And those might be large caps, might be small caps, might be mid caps, who don't, who knows? Um, they might be liquid, they might be illiquid. But it's just finding when the opportunity is and swinging big and hoping that it's a compound for the next 10, 20, 30 years. The other possible truths um, that I thought about is, one is, I think this is a very obvious one, is that, yeah, a business that returns a higher return on invested capital is probably better than a business that returns lower return on invested capital. If I have a business that returns ROIC of 40%, it's probably better than, and sorry, 40% for like consistently for about five, 10 years, it's probably better than the one that does 15% for the same period of time. Um, I mean, it just returns more on its invested capital. It's probably better. It's probably a better business. And then the other is just, if you're going to be a short-term person, um, quote-unquote, a trader, then you're probably better off being a quant. Um, I mean, Jim Simons of Renaissance Technologies has kind of proven that out. And I think it's more so the idea of it's extremely hard to forecast the future, um, even to forecast a day out, even a month, uh, sorry, a month out, even a day out is extremely hard. And the longer you have to forecast something out, there's more variables that will be that will need to be incorporated because the longer something stretches out, more things can go wrong and happen, and more things from the external environment can happen because we're not in a closed system. Um, this is an open system. That's what the real world is. So, to be extremely short-term oriented, you need to also be extremely quantitative. I think um, because I think there's ways to make that work. I I don't know how, but I think there's ways to make that work because some people have consistently done it. The other way, once again, is to do it long term. If you are quote unquote more of a qualitative investor like myself, then I think you have to do it long term, and that's mainly because um, it's not about just thinking long term, but it's just more so being patient. Because naturally, it just takes a long time to build a business. It takes a long time to build a singular product. You have to test things, and you have to see if it works, and you have to see how it's adopted, and then you have to wait until you know the early adopters go past it, and then you know the early majority comes, and then the laggards come. Like. 
things take time. Sometimes it might happen quickly, but most times it'll take a long time. It'll take years. And so it's more so if you're investing in a business, it's just being aware and giving the company time to build things out. I think that's what it truly means to be a long-term investor, not just bluntly, oh, it's going to take a long term for things to work out. No, it's just because businesses take a long time to do things. Change happens slowly. Um, like it doesn't happen on a daily basis, especially the larger the company it is, especially in the public equity world. Now, a startup can make changes very quickly and things can change rapidly. Um, but I think as you hit even like a billion dollar in of market cap inside, it's going to get harder to make changes quickly. Um, this is more of a lump, lumbering giant. And then I think the final um, thought thing that I thought was a, a truth is that owner-operated businesses are most likely going to be the ones that fit the handful that'll do well. Um, I think it's just they'll just they're more they're more likely to give a shit about the company, and um, they're more likely to be able to do weird things. I think that are required to um, have outsized returns and create a phenomenal organization. Um, and I think that's kind of that's been a consistent theme for me and even my evolving style. But what's been constantly consistent is that it has to be an owner operators are really important in business. Um, and I think for me, any company that's done well for me has usually had that kind of element as well. And for me, I sleep better at night. Um, believing so. There's a bit of like confirmation there too, but I think this it's truly a truth that you need to invest in companies that are run by owner operators. Could be a founder, could be someone who bought a business, bought into the business, but actually became an owner um, with majority shareholder, uh, became a majority shareholder um, through the buyout. But either way, they're going to be the actual stewards behind driving the business forward. Um, let's see. I'm, I've been talking for a while, so this has been a longer episode than usual. It's also um, keeping in mind that tomorrow's my first day of work. Um, back to back to um, working uh, um, at a job and for the first time in what two more than two years now so uh, I probably won't have a podcast episode tomorrow so you know enjoy this it might be a little so it's a little long but it's kind of a bonus um, and I'll probably have a follow-up episode talking about kind of the impossible new structure of uh, the OMD daily podcast it might uh, move from a daily intended daily podcast is something more like three a week um, just or more um, not as consistent I guess um, but I'll still try to aim for like at least three episodes more of detailed um, quality content but anyhow uh, that's for a separate episode anyhow continuing um, and so yeah all those thoughts the truths questioning the truths and thinking about what what are what is actually true in investing made me think about okay then let's think through um, fish ponds and the idea of individuality for me because the whole idea started of yeah what where do i want to fish um i am not a quant i'm not a trader so definitely not short term long term oriented i like owner operators i've always liked investing in management i've always liked studying management and so constantly keeping aware of my own personality as well as an investor because i think that's very important to identifying your own edge uh quote unquote the varying perception everyone likes to talk about that stuff and before, my, I thought my edge was always very structural um, because I invest in illiquid small caps, so then not a lot of large caps are there. I don't have to compete with them. But I realized I'm actually competing with other very smart people who are actually doing more stuff than me, more scuttlebutt, so I might actually lose to them. Um, and they want to uncover more rocks than me, and their pace is faster. And so I was like, hmm, I could either work harder that way, but at the same time, I know it's just not natural to me, so I'm going to go somewhere that fits more of my strategy. 
And then there's like other edges where, because like your edge can, you know, it's flexible. It changes. Like when I look at, when I used to look at um, Asian companies, um, I had a advantage in Korean companies with language and culture. So there's a bit of an informational slash analytical edge. Um, some analytical edge is kind of a different point of view. There's also the mostly used time uh, arbitrage, where, or not arbitrage, but long-term time horizon as an edge. One edge that's not talked about often is independence. Um, I think I can do more things um, for my portfolio than a fund manager that works for an institutional fund can because I don't have all these rules and mandates and I don't have to report to anyone. And so I can go in and out of positions fast. I can change my mind much faster. I can have larger concentrations in companies that I believe in. Um, these are all things that a fund manager can't do. I can evolve and change my investment philosophy and strategy much quickly as well. For some managers, they can't because that's what the, the product that they're selling. And even if in the front, in the face of contrary evidence, um, like they might say, they can't go back to their clients and say, oh yeah, you know that thing I told you that I thought was right? Well, turns out I'm wrong and I'm going to give you all your money back. Well, most fund managers will not do that. It's career suicide. Um, some might. Some who are highly respected, who've earned the trust of clients might do that. But most who are professionals won't be able to do that. So I think there's actually an edge that individuals have over um, fund managers. So this kind of independence is something different. Obviously, also lack resources. Um, but in one ways, I think a one's Twitter community of great investors might be more valuable than um, a team that you have in an average fund. Not, I mean, I, I have an opinion that investing is more so closer to a solo game where you have a community around you that um, you can share ideas with but i think it's still a solo endeavor uh some people say it's more similar to baseball when you're you know a, a solo batter you have a team you work together but then when you're actually um, batting it's just you against someone else um that's why i like investing because it's very much like powerlifting it, well, they have a community of people you train with you still compete as an independent person so yeah I, uh, considering all that though and getting selfish i'm thinking about what do i want to do what works for me, what I think um, is a pond that I want to fish in. Because market cap, weight, market cap driven, volume driven, industry driven, um, just financial metrics um, focus, geographic focus, all these specializations people have to do to sell a product and a service don't make sense to me, um, at least to me uh, as an investor, like how I want to invest. Um, I just don't think there really is an edge for me there because I don't really care about specializing in those areas. I don't also think that they are places to provide outperformance because that's the whole point, right? The whole point of investing for me, as much as it's an intellectual exercise um, of exercising the intellectual curiosity I have to learn more about the world, you still want to generate wealth. Let's not kid ourselves. I want to make a lot of money and do well financially from this. So if the point is this absolute return, the highest possible I could get, then there's it makes no sense for me to limit myself to specific areas that don't necessarily ring true for being better places or places to actually deliver the outperformance. Um, so then once again, the question overall is where do I fish? Where do I, um, what pond do I go to? And then I thought about the idea of moats. Um, competitive advantages, strategic moats. It's a, once again, very popular theme, very popularly um, used by a lot of value investors, a lot of investors in general, a lot of books on analyzing competitive advantage and moats. But then it, I was thinking about, hmm, when you analyze an economic moat, you're 
aren't you just kind of looking at the past? Like it's just kind of a, in, like a backward-looking analysis of trying to explain why something might have high return on invested capital. Like a business has like a high return on invested capital for a five, ten years, and then you're just trying to explain why it happened. And in many ways, there's human rationality issue, uh, rationalization issues involved, where you just try to rationalize something as is. Um, with some kind of tag as, oh, it has scale. It has a network effect. I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe that was what helped it succeed. We don't know that. Um, I mean, some people say they do, but it's just, I, I don't know, I, I'm more and more questioning the certainty of such facts. Now, I'm not disagreeing with the concepts. Like, yeah, I do believe in network economy, um, network effects and eco- uh, economies of scale. I do believe they are valid, and looking at businesses that way kind of gives you an understanding of oh, okay, so this is kind of a strategy, what they're going for, what they're trying to achieve, and how they want to compete. Um, I think these are all very valid. But it just made me think about well, okay, if investing is the business of using the present to see the future, right? Because we're all trying to somewhat predict by picking stocks, and you're saying this is going to outperform. In one ways. Aren't you trying to identify companies that will that have systems in place that can create new advantages or um, build upon their existing advantages, assuming that they have one? And it, I mean, it's just so hard to have ever said that. Oh, I, I can predict that you know Facebook would buy Instagram. It's, I can predict that Tencent would have created WeChat. I can predict that Google would have um, done all this machine learning stuff. You just couldn't have done that. And you couldn't have said that because they dominate search, they're going to do all this other machine learning thing. They're going to do all this other stuff with like, and go into cloud and have YouTube. You couldn't have ever predicted that. They just had this advantage they had in search before. Then the quest, then it made me think about, well, hmm, if I were to analyze the present, what really matters, once again, kind of now touching upon the element of investing in people is... I actually think the biggest difference, at least for the kind of companies I'm interested in, is their ability to acquire talent, develop talent, and retain talent. Because you need to create an environment where, A, people can pursue creative projects, so they can either pursue looking at buying companies to use strategically, like Facebook did with Instagram, Google did with YouTube, or create products like how Gmail came about, Google Maps, um, I don't know if Google Maps was an acquisition one. Uh, I know there was like a Geo Maps before, but um, I think that was developed internally too, or like Google Photos. Um, you also need to create an environment where people want to stay for a long period of time to actually build these products out. Because if you have an organization, like you know, I'm going to give an example of professional services, like the fields I was in, like accounting, consulting, my friends in banking, my friends in law. Those are, um, you know, just. Oh, there's a word for them, I forget. It's like a turning door um, company where people just come in and out, in and out, in and out. Like, they just bleed talent constantly. And that's kind of their job. It's just they sell a brand and they get young talent. In, and some people stay. But the you know, it's harder to see companies create something innovative and creative when they don't retain people and people stay there long enough to do product uh, to projects that can create new products and can be innovative. And I know that's a very convoluted word, and I hate using it that way either, but I think there's no other word I can think about. 
So in essence, you need to have an organization that has a system in place that is somewhat very decentralized that allows people to continuously experiment and test things out and fail a lot um, with obviously the the hope of succeeding. Um, and so in one way, you need an organization that is very entrepreneurial in their setting, like how Amazon came up with AWS, right? Um, the system that they had there, how Square has a cash app. Some companies will have a one-off. Um, but some companies can consistently disrupt themselves and reinvent things like when Apple did during like the Steve Jobs era and possibly even the Tim Cook era. I I didn't really analyze too much, but I just know that Apple went from a computer company to a uh, music company to a phone company. Sorry, computer company was a laptop company and then a music company to a phone company. Like they continuously innovated and changed how the company made money and the com- Apple now is nothing like Apple of before in terms of how their revenue, like what brings in the money. And so that's a very unique organization. And it makes me think about how historically we've had cities um, that were the place for innovation, right? Um, some people would say Silicon Valley from uh, decades ago or, you know, um, Italy uh, during the Renaissance period, just places people gravitate towards to do things. Um, One can say Seattle is one because we have Amazon, Microsoft, Costco, Starbucks, all from there. But over time, I think about how I think companies, although they used to follow, they typically follow the life of an organism where you grow and stop growing, you die just like people do. What if companies can become like cities? Um, not necessarily perennial, but they grow super linearly um, following the power law. And they just become a place um, where people associate their more identity with. Uh, so this is an idea I've been constantly thinking about before, so I'm kind of incorporating this now. And oh, I just lost another train of thought. Um because I've kind of gone off script from what I had written. Although this message is all kind of there. Um, but yeah, that this idea of venture capitalists will invest in hundreds of companies, let's say. And because many will fail. But you want to have like one that's this big. A company, a large company might actually be able to do the same. Not necessarily like it, not, it doesn't necessarily have to be like a Google. It could still be like a billion dollar company or a $10 billion company. They could already have the systems in place to allow people to constantly experiment. And the idea that you you can never know where things will come up from, right? Like you look at all the inventions of the past, none of them were really intended to be inventions and use cases of what we do now, right? Laser was never never invented with a certain use case. The guy did it because he wanted to split a light beam. Microwaves were, what, military technology from um, radar or something? Um... The internet was not supposed to be what it is now. It was military technology as well. So it because you don't know how things are going to come out, you actually want to create a place where m- m- more randomness can happen, more opportunities are present for people to try things. And so that makes me think about a possible pawn to fishing because I don't think there are many people who look at that. And once again, I might think that I'm original. I am not original. I definitely do think there's someone out there thinking the exact same thing. Someone might have written about all this stuff too. But it's something I've been thinking about um, as a way to move once again from something I used to believe where I thought there was truth in investing in small cap and illiquid companies to something very different where now I'm more market cap agnostic 
um, geography agnostic, but more just finding companies that could become what I believe to be utopian in nature, where it could just be like a city-state. And it actually is an environment that allows for so much tinkering that it can constantly produce new products that can actually cannibalize itself, not in the form of buying back shares, like most people believe, and as Charlie Munger has constantly talked about, but cannibalizing their own products for the betterment of the company. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I've been thinking about. To kind of wrap it up, the few truths of investing um, that I talked about I think are true is that high return on invested capital businesses are better than lower ones, sustained over a period of time. Patience to hold for long term is important. Owner operators are important. There will be only a few great companies out there. Um, hence, that's why you kind of diversify. And I don't know if this is true yet, but I think um, something to be true and a possible pawn for me um, is that businesses that invest in the continuous creativity and development of people will be um, the ones who can succeed sustainably for the long term. I don't know how else to eloquently put that. Um, I don't even have a term for it yet, but that's the thought I had. That's the thought exercise. It's been an hour. I This is the longest I think I've actually spoken. It's probably because I'm so excited about this topic. But I hope this was interesting. I hope this was helpful. And yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode and hope to have you back on the podcast again. I, I once again, apologize. The um, new cadence will be more irregular, but I promise it'll at least be one episode a week, 100% because I love doing this, but it might just not be every day. Um, so please keep that in mind and forgive me if I ruined your week with that announcement. That really touches me dearly to know that. Um, and yeah, thanks once again for listening in and hope you have a great day. Take care.